The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. All right, good morning, church. We're reading from Luke chapter 20, starting at verse 19, and we'll be reading down all the way to verse 44. So if you're reading from the Black Pew Bible, you can find this on page 826, and you may go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies, who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? He perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him and what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man, man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife, will be the, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to obtain uh, to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Tommy. 
Uh, Pastor John, his family, they are in Iowa this morning as he's preaching at a friend's church, so I know he would appreciate your prayers as he comes to mind. And uh, it is not by chance that we have Mr. Chance, Newingham, filling in. Did you like that? That was, yeah, it was pretty lame, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, Chance has agreed to uh, fill in for John. Brother, I appreciate you. Thank you for the time that you've already invested this week in preparing for uh, this sermon this morning. Let me pray for you, okay? Father, I thank you for the precious gift that the Newingham family is to our family here. I thank you for saving them and calling them to yourself. Thank you for, God, the, just the many gifts that you have given to them and how they are seeking to serve you in the various different contexts that you have placed them. Thank you for my brother Chance and his desire to preach your word faithfully. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would empower him, give him uh, clear thoughts, a clear voice. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you would have for us through your word proclaimed this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks, Brady. You're welcome. <laughs> welcome. It's good to be here. Uh, so, I don't know how many of you guys have uh, prepared a, a sermon before, or um, you know, even a, a, a like a Sunday school lesson, something like that. Uh, f- for me, what I always write last is the very first thing that you hear, and that is the introduction. Okay, so when I write a sermon, that's that's just the way it works. I I work all the way through the text. I have my conclusion, and and once I know what the text is actually about, then I can come up with an appropriate opening that introduces the text and points us towards the conclusion, right? That makes total sense. I got nothing today. I don't have an opening, all right? I I, I thought and I tried and I just couldn't couldn't come up with one. And maybe that's for the best because we have quite a bit of material to cover today, lots and lots of verses. And so I'm just going to jump right in, and I want to do that by referencing Jonathan's sermon this past week. If you remember last week when Jonathan was preaching, he covered the beginning verses in Luke 20. And in those verses, Jesus' authority was questioned. The scribes and the chief priests, they demanded of Jesus, asking Him where He got His power. This is what they asked in verse 2, "'Tell us by what authority you do these things, and who it is that gave you this authority.'" Now, if you remember, Jesus didn't want to play their game on their terms, so He said, "'You know what? I'll I'll answer your question if you can answer one of my questions.'" And Jesus then asked a question, They didn't like the answer to that, and so they said, no, we're not going to answer that. And then Jesus said, okay, likewise, I'm not going to answer your question. Well, right after that, in their hearing, in the hearing of the scribes and the chief priests, Jesus told a scathing parable against them about how they had rejected God and how they had rejected the Messiah. And as you can imagine, that did not go over well. The text says that they were deeply offended, so much so that they wanted Jesus to die. And they started to carefully lay out traps to take Him down. That's where we find ourselves today. He has offended them, they want Him dead, and they have begun to formulate traps to bring Him down. That's where we're going to be at verse 19. Before we jump in, though, I want to sort of give you an outline for for where we're going, okay? If I had to sum up like the big idea, the big treasure for today... I think it's this, Jesus' authority demands that we give Him all that we are, all right? This is the big idea. Jesus' authority, we're going to see this established, His authority demands that we give Him every aspect of our lives, 
And then the four subsequent truths, there are four other realms where Jesus is going to demonstrate His authority. That's what you had read to you this morning. These are the the minor truths or the the small treasures. First one is this, Jesus had authority over political powers. Number two, Jesus authoritatively confirmed the resurrection. Number three, Jesus proved His authority and identity. And then finally, number four, Jesus had authority over phony religion. In each one of these stories, Jesus' authority and legitimacy that had just been challenged at the beginning of this chapter is going to be front and center for all to see, proving that He has authority beyond a shadow of a doubt. So I want to pray, and then we'll jump in with verse 19. Lord, we're thankful for Your Word. We know that the the only way that we can be impacted by what we've heard and what we're going to go over again now is if Your Spirit moves. God, we pray that You would take our hearts of stone and that You would melt them. Help us to see truth, be changed by that truth, and then live to your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so jump back in, looking at verse 19. If you remember, I usually read a verse or two or three, and then we stop and talk about it. So look at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, so they perceived, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So what'd they do? They watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. I mean, it's only two verses here, but you can see like the hatred that the scribes and the chief priests have. They wanted to lay hands on him at that very hour. It's not like, hey guys, let's get together, let's come up with a plan, this, this is an end game here, this is long term. No, they wanted something to happen to him within the hour, within a matter of minutes. And then you get to see their plan of attack. The text says that they sent deceitful watchers, spies, to try and catch Jesus in the tiniest little slip-up of his speech. And then they could take Jesus, rush him to the governing authorities and say, look at what he said, look at what he did, take him, kill him. It's pretty straightforward. Next we see their attack in verses 21 and 22. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Verse 22, is it lawful for us to give a tribute to Caesar or not? You know, having the, the context of the first two verses, we can almost see like the, the guile drip off of their question, right? Like they're trying to, to butter him up. We know that they don't believe what they're saying. It's like they're saying, Jesus, Teacher, oh wise one, listen, we, we come before you. We know that you always speak and teach what, what's right. We would never challenge that. We, show that you, we know that you show no partiality. You truly te- teach the way of God. We respect that. Therefore, we humbly submit to you, Jesus, oh wise one, a question. Should we pay a tribute to Caesar? Please share your brilliant answer with us so that we can obey. Right? That, 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 that's like the impression that they're giving, but that's not what they mean at all. It's a trap. You see, these pretenders were there to harm Jesus, right? The text tells us that. And they believed that his question, this question, no matter how he answered, he would be in trouble, all right? And so we have to put ourselves in their their mindset. Let's follow their logic. If Jesus were to say, yes, pay your taxes, 
the people were going to be angry and Rome would be happy, right? The people are like, I don't want to pay taxes. I don't want to listen to this Jesus guy. I'm not following him anymore. So if he answers in that way, his accusers think we got him. But if he answers in the other way, if Jesus said that the people were not to pay taxes, Rome was going to be angry and they're going to grab him by the arm, rush him to the authorities and say, this guy's anti-Rome. So either way, Jesus is in trouble, right? Either he loses the people or he loses against Rome. Well, Jesus had a response that they didn't anticipate. Look at the next couple verses. Look at verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius, just a, a common coin back then. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus is no dummy, right? Like, He knows what they're up to. He knows what they're doing. I almost picture Jesus like, you know, as, as they're, they're asking the question and He's getting ready to respond, I almost picture Him like, like cracking His knuckles, right? Like cracking His neck. I mean, the text doesn't say that, but I have the microphone right now so I can pretend, right? I don't think He was doing that. But that thought comes to mind to me because... They had laid a trap for Jesus, and here Jesus is the eternally wise one. He's like, actually, that trap that you set for me, I'm about to turn it back on you. You think you're going to get me, but I'm going to use your logic and reverse it back on you. Jesus is like, all right, I'll answer your question. So go ahead and pull out a coin, all right? When one of them does that, everybody would have looked at that coin that one of the the scribes or the chief priests pulled out, and, and they would have thought, there's a denarius, one day's wages right there. And then Jesus said, whose face and inscription are stamped on that coin that you hold? Caesar's, of course. And Jesus is like, there's your answer to your tax question. Should you pay taxes? Yeah, that coin that you hold allows you to buy and trade. This is me like reading between the lines, right? The road that you walk on, the government that serves you, the military that protects you, all of those things are built on the back of that little coin that you hold. You can't even buy a loaf of bread without that coin. In short, Jesus is saying, pay your taxes, right? End of story. No, it's not the end of the story. You see, if it were the end of the story, his accusers would have shouted, look, everybody, he's pro-Roman. We hate Rome. Everybody abandon him. Leave him. But remember, we didn't read the, we haven't talked about the second part of verse 25. Remember, the first part says this, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That, that's the part we hear like, okay, yeah, pay my taxes, whatever, I get that. W- what about the second half? And to God the things that are God's. You see, the, the scribes and the chief priests, they are trying to nail Jesus right here. They think this is the best scenario that they can come up with to turn him over to the governing authorities to have him murdered, right? This is serious business. They think they've got him. But here he nails them. And he does so in such a way that we might miss as we read this verse, but I don't think the original hearers would have. I think I can summarize it with with a couple questions, okay? It is as if the second part of Jesus' statement here would cause his accusers to ask two questions of themselves. First question is this. This is the implication of what Jesus said. What things do you possess that belong to God? And the second thing, whose likeness and inscription do you carry? 
So, so let's answer these questions on behalf of the scribes and the chief priests, all right? What things do we possess that belong to God? What things did the scribes and the chief priests possess that belong to God? Everything. Everything that we have, everything that they had is the Lord's. Psalm 24 verse 1 reads this way, the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. God owns everything. Second question then, and whose likeness and inscription do you carry? We as human beings, the scribes and the chief priests as human beings, are made in the image of God. Genesis 1.26 reads this way, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So if we are made, in the, we're made by God and made in His image and His likeness, who owns us? God owns us. You see, this attempt by the scribes and the chief priests to entrap Jesus ultimately backfires because it entraps them. Jesus subtly shifted the focus from Caesar. I don't think Jesus is like saying, hey, ignore earthly issues altogether like taxes, but I think He's highlighting the supreme significance of God over eternal matters as compared to earthly temporal matters. Here's what it comes down to, like a simplification for me. When you really think about it, verse 25, it's pretty easy to pay your taxes, right? Especially if you have a tax person. They like give you the envelope that's already pre-addressed and you just put it in there and then you mail it, right? It's pretty easy to pay your taxes. You know what's not easy though in comparison? Giving all that you are to the Lord of all creation. Paying your taxes is pretty easy when you compare that to handing your life over to the one who made you. Jesus is, again, I'm reading between the lines, right, offering a little bit of commentary here. Jesus is like, guys, you don't get it. You're asking about Caesar. Caesar's a, a small fish. You're missing the big picture. You should be more concerned about God than you are about Him. Your ultimate focus must be on that which is eternal. N not that you don't have to care about things that are earthly, but your ultimate allegiance is to God. You see, the scribes and the chief priests, they were forgetting passages. They knew them, but they were forgetting passages like Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. In this text, I'm going to read it for you. Moses outlined what it meant to surrender yourself to God. It reads this way, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except, it's almost like he's like, eh, it's not a lot, but I'm going to tell you what it is. What does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God by walking in His ways, to love Him, and to worship the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Keep the Lord's commands and statutes that I'm giving you today for your own good. Jesus is like, hey, pay your taxes. What's more eternal than paying your taxes or politics, though, scribes and Pharisees, because this is the trap that you set for me, what is more eternal than that, though, is surrendering all of yourself to God, your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And Jesus says, I'm here on God's behalf, and you're rejecting me. This is point number one. I think clearly and plainly Jesus was showing his authority over political powers and that's number one on our outline. Jesus was and is superior to any earthly ruler or government. You can look back in history. You can look, actually look today at, at modern things that are going on. 
kingdoms and governments here on earth change and fall. We're seeing that happen right now in real time. Kingdoms and governments on earth will fall, but God's kingdom transcends all that. In this moment, I think Jesus is not just asserting His authority over the political realm, but I think He is also giving an invitation of deeper allegiance to the kingdom of God that goes far beyond earthly politics and power struggles. Jesus gave a pretty short answer here, but I hope you see that it is one that is packed with force and depth. Look at their response in verse 26. (laughs) I love it. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him and what he said. Duh, it's Jesus, right? But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Uh, One commentator wrote that they were stunned into silence. I love that. And, And so we're able to be, you know, just for a second, we're able to be like, yeah, go Jesus. Like, you got him, you know. Well, the very next verse is a new group of people trying to set a new trap so that Jesus can be taken away. The second wave of attack here is from the the Sadducees. They were a group of Jews that, among many things, they denied the resurrection. And, And what I mean by that is they did not believe that God would ever raise anyone from the dead, okay? Not even thinking about Jesus. I mean, especially they would deny His resurrection, but they didn't believe in the resurrection at all, which is strange because they knew the Old Testament, they knew the Mosaic Law, yet they didn't believe the passages that talked about believers resurrection. So, let's look at their argument beginning in verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who denied that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise her up and raise up offspring for his brother. And here's their hypothetical situation, verse 29. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died, verse 33. In the resurrection, therefore, whose life, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. So, pretty, pretty straightforward illustration, even if it is like a little far-fetched, right? Like one brother marrying, he passes away, boom, 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 all the way down the line. We, we get what they're saying. And here's the deal. The Sadducees actually had the law right. They were remembering the Mosaic law correctly. It did teach that if a husband and wife were married and that husband died, that the brother of that husband was to take that woman as his wife, love her, care for her, and then have a child with her so that the family line could continue. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6 read this way. This is what the Sadducees were thinking about and quoting when they gave Jesus this trap. The text says from Deuteronomy, when brothers live on the same property and one of them dies without a son, the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside of the family. Her brother-in-law is to take her as his wife, have sexual relations with her, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law for her. The firstborn son that she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother, so his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think when we read this carefully, we begin to understand the intent behind this command. Not only was the brother-in-law to care for the woman, to love her, to treat her well, he was also to have a child with her so that his brother's lineage 
and her lineage could continue forward. Well, it's with that idea in mind that the Sadducees pose their question, right? They, they set their trap. It's like they're saying, so Jesus, in the resurrection that we don't believe in, remember, we're Sadducees, but, but, but just for this argument, let's say we do, in the resurrection, whose wife would that woman be? You know, it's just like before with uh, the scribes and the chief priests. Those who ask the question believe that no matter how Jesus answers, He's going to be in trouble, right? They, they think they have Him trapped. Because if Jesus agreed with them, He's like, okay, boys, you got me. Like, that's a doozy. I don't know what to say with that one. And because your question is so crazy and it trapped me, clearly the resurrection isn't true. That's one option, right? Conversely, though, if Jesus answered the question by saying, uh, it was brother number three, well, they're going to be like, now hold up. What about brother one, brother two, brother four, five, six, and seven? Come on, Jesus. What's wrong with those guys? Again, they believe that no matter how he answered, he was going to be in trouble. It's not really a trap, though, when you read Jesus' response. In fact, just like before, it's like they don't learn. He takes the trap that they set and then turns it around back on those trap setters, right? They don't learn. Now, I'm going to warn you, these next few verses and then some verses after that, they're a little, at least for me, they were a little hard to, to follow. So take heart, though. I have a diagram. We're going we're gonna to get through this together, okay? So let's first off by, start by reading uh, 34 through 36. Look at verse 34. Again, this is Jesus responding to their question, their impossible question that they believe disproves the resurrection. Look at verse 34. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection." So, does anybody read that and think, I don't really understand what's going on there, okay? That's me. So, let me try and, and break it down a little bit, all right? It is as if Jesus is saying, okay, guys, you asked me about marriage, right? That's what your question is, Sadducees. Yes, sons of this age, which is another way of saying believers who are alive on earth. Yes, sons of this age, they do get married, and that's fine. Marriage is God's good gift to people. But that is here and now. Life here and now is temporary. In the age to come, though, in all eternity, in the resurrection, in life after death, there will not be marriage. This is my simplification of what Jesus is saying here, okay? I really like what one commentator, uh, how he summed it up. He said, the Sadducees were assuming that the conditions in the age to come would precisely be like the conditions of this age. He then simplifies it even further and he says, Tuesdays in heaven will not be like Tuesdays on earth. I like that. Now, I will tell you, the mention of angels in uh, verse 36, I'm like, what in the world is going on here? Like, how, how does this relate? Well, after really thinking about it, looking at some resources, I think it makes a whole lot of sense with the question that the Sadducees asked, okay? So, so stick with me here. When we think of angels, we think of them like being with God in the beginning 
and then continuing through creation, then angels being in heaven, right, living forever. So in this made-up story that the Sadducees used, they talk about a rule from Deuteronomy where if a guy dies, his brother should marry the widow to keep the family name going. But do you know what's not needed in the resurrection? Keeping the family name going because nobody's dying. There's no need to have a system set in place like that so that a person's name and lineage can continue because they're in a place that is eternal. Do you see how Jesus is like, he takes their question and sort of sticks it to them with an answer that they hadn't even thought about? It is as if he's saying, he's like, guys, you're missing the whole point. The resurrection is true. It's not about marriage or preserving lineage or any of that stuff. You have to believe me, the resurrection will happen. And in the next verse, verse 37, Jesus reaches all the way back in the Old Testament to support his case about the resurrection being something that is real. I think his answer gets a little hard to follow, but again, we'll, we'll wade through it together. So look at verse 37. Remember, he's giving evidence for the resurrection. Here it is, verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So here's how I would explain this. Jesus is saying, he's like, you guys, the Sadducees, you deny the resurrection. But even Moses in the Old Testament at the burning bush believed in the resurrection. So why would you guys deny it? So I want to go back to that passage. Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Okay, this is what Jesus is pointing to. Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. It reads this way. All right, be on the lookout for the word resurrection, for the idea of the resurrection. Exodus 3, verse 6 reads, And he, God, said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Did you see the word resurrection anywhere? <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, do I need to look this up in a different version? Like, what's going on here? We're not going to find the word resurrection here, but you will find the idea of the resurrection embedded in the logic of this verse. L- l- let me explain to you, okay? If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead and gone forever, it would have been appropriate for God to say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because they're dead, right? They're, they're long gone. He was their God while they're alive, but if they're dead and no more, it wouldn't be appropriate for him to say, I am their God. He would say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that's not what he says. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God spoke in the present tense long after these men's bodies had died, because their souls were still with them. They were in relationship with Him, existing with Him forever. You see, the Sadducees failed to recognize that the resurrection was just as true for the patriarchs as it would be for Jesus and believers after Him. In the next few verses then, we see Jesus offer kind of a a quick summary, and then we get a summary of what's going on. Look at verse 38. Again, Jesus is speaking about God. Now, He is not God of the dead. He's saying, God is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to Him. Verse 39, then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask Him any questions. (laughs) I love it, right? He silences them again. 
all the groups, first the scribes, then the chief priests, then the Sadducees, they come up with what they believe to be foolproof traps, but they end up being made out to be fools themselves. And what did Jesus do? This is number two. He authoritatively confirmed the resurrection. We see that in this text. The resurrection was irrefutably and unquestionably true, for God himself had stated it in the Old Testament in numerous passages, particularly in the one that we look at, Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. So thus far, Jesus has kind of been on the defense, right? Like everybody is coming at him with these questions. Well, what's going to happen in the rest of our text for this morning? Jesus is going to go on offense. It's his turn to start asking the questions. Now, here's where I want to be like upfront with with you. It took me quite a bit of coffee and prayer and time and and reading and commentaries to to wade through these next few verses because there's there's modern talk and then there's a quotation that goes back to the Old Testament and then there's modern talk again, but Jesus is talking about people who are there, but you don't clearly see that. So it, it gets a little muddy. But I think the diagram is going to help. First, though, let me explain what's, what's going on, okay? Jesus is trying to get, well, first off, he's asking two questions. And with these two questions, he's trying to get his listeners to arrive at one answer, okay? Same thing, same core that he's trying to get them to, but he's asking two questions to get them to that place. And the answer is... Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, and He has all authority. That's what He wants them to believe. That's what He wants them to get to, and He asked two different questions to get them there. You know, everybody thus far in the chapter has been questioning His authority, but here He puts His authority on display for all to see so that there's no doubt, and He does that by asking two questions. So, we'll look at verses 41 through 44. But He said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, quoting Psalms now, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Show of hands again. Is that confusing to anybody? All right, super confusing. I went to Bible college, okay? even a little bit of seminary, right? Well, I promised you a diagram. Now, I got to warn you, the diagram is bananas. I mean, there aren't bananas on it, but it's, it's all over the place. So, go ahead, if you would, please put the diagram up there. Voila, right? All right, th- this is how I make sense of this, okay? So, you see the two questions are highlighted in gray, All right, these are the two questions that Jesus asked. Remember, he's pointing them to the answer that he is the Messiah and he has all authority, all right? So, I'm going to read it. My commentary is in um, the red that you see there. So, let's, let's try and work through it together, okay? But he, Jesus, said to them, who's he talking about? Well, we go back in the chapter. It's the scribes, the chief priests, and the Sadducees. And he said to them, he's asking them the question, how can they say the they that he's actually referring to are the same group of people. He could have said, how come you guys say, but he says, how come they say, he's quoting like religious thinking in general, okay? How can they say that the Christ is David's son? So we'll stop there. Jesus is saying, how can you guys say that the Christ is David's son? 
They would have said that because that's what Scripture teaches. You go back to like 2 Samuel 7, 12, and 13, Isaiah 9, 6. Those passages teach that one would come from David's line that would save the world, that one would come from David's lineage that would be the Messiah. So Jesus isn't necessarily, with this question, trying to correct a wrong view. He's trying to point him at a right answer. He's like, okay, so you guys say this. You guys say that the Christ is David's son. And here he gives him something to think about. Verse 42. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, so he's quoting David now, right? Back in the book of Psalms, it's Psalm 110, verse 1. And David is writing this, and then this is what David says. David says, the Lord said to my Lord. So it's like David is listening to a conversation that's happening between God and Christ. The Lord, God, said to my Lord, the coming Messiah, Jesus the Christ, said this to him, and I heard it, sit at my right hand. God is saying to Christ, sit at my right hand, my seat of authority, until I, God, make your enemies your footstool. Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies your footstool. This is what David is hearing going on. And then in verse 44, Jesus jumps back to modern day. He ends the quotation from Psalms, and he poses his second question. David thus calls him Lord. Who's he talking about? Jesus. He's like, David called him his Lord. How can he, how is he his son? How is the Christ David's son? Hopefully that helps a little bit, okay? We've done the hard work. I'm going to give you a very simplified version, okay? Here's what I think that Jesus is trying to get them to think about and to answer. Jesus is asking them, how can a descendant of David be superior to David? That's what all that boils down to. How can a descendant of David be superior to David? Well, the the only correct answer to that is, if the one who comes after David is the Messiah, and, and the, the Sadducees would have been like, yeah, bingo, like we believe that. The one who comes after David, even though he's a son of David, is going to be greater than David. And Jesus, by telling this, he's getting him to lean in close and he says, I'm that guy. You wonder who this is. You talk about this all the time. You're expectantly waiting for the Messiah. He's here. And he's the Christ. He was standing right in front of them, in their midst, teaching them, calling them to change, to see that he was eternal, but they refused. And that's number three on our list. They were challenging his authority, but here Jesus was proving his authority and his identity. Again, this is one of those times that we read this, and after we hear it explained, we're like, oh yeah, okay, I could see Jesus asserting his authority. This would have been like like earth-shattering for them. They would have been like, oh my gosh, he's claiming to be this guy. Jesus is like, I am the seed of David, yet I am sovereign over David. I am an earthly descendant of David, but I'm also divine. I am a part of David's family tree, but I also planted that tree. But you're missing it. In an effort to further bring clarity to those who desperately needed it, 
in the next few verses, 45 through 47, Jesus offered a warning. Remember, he's been battling it out with the Sadducees, the chief priests, and the scribes. Look at what he has to say about them in verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said this to his disciples. So you can imagine like Jesus' disciples are over here and here's the crowd and he's like, hey, disciples, he's going to talk to them, but the other people can hear it as well, right? And he says this, beware of the scribes who look, who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Right? Specifically, I mean, the, the, the little subhead there says, beware of the scribes. And so clearly this is directed at the scribes. Jesus even says that. But it's also applicable to the other groups that have been challenging his authority, right? The chief priests and the Sadducees. They love being the center of attention. They loved rank. That, that, that's the long robes, right? Different robes, different lengths, different positions. They loved rank. They loved praises. They loved being greeted formally and eloquently in front of all the people. They loved promotion. They, they loved it when people said, oh, hey, look, this, this seat right here, this, this head of the table, this is, this is for you. It has armrests. No other chairs have armrests. You, you have this. Yours has nice fabric. Everybody else's is wood-backed. This, this chair is for you, oh, dear religious leader. He said that's what the Sadducees, that's what the chief priests, that's what the scribes, that's what they love, to be the center of attention. But notice what the last verse says. It does not go unnoticed by God. There's also some, some information in there about widows, the devouring of their houses. I'm like, what does that mean? Like, you know, you, you think of devouring like eating. Well, they would go to a widow whose husband had just died. They would help her settle her estate, pocketing what they could, saying, well, you know what? It would be so righteous of you if you gave me some of the money. And if you also gave some of the money to God's kingdom, he would devour their homes. And then they would also offer these heartfelt, long prayers in the process, just being wordy, just being long-winded, so people would think that they were holy. Notice, though, the text says it does not go unnoticed. I love it says that they're not just going to receive condemnation. They will receive greater condemnation. God knew their fraudulent hearts. He knew their empty, phony religion. And to bring it all home, in the final four verses that we're going to look at, at the beginning of chapter 21, Jesus observed an offering being taken, and He used it as one last opportunity to point out more phony religion. Look at the verse, verse 1 in chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. I think that was like the smallest amount of money you could give back then. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. I mean, it's pretty clear, right? This, this poor widow, she's truly devoted. She gave all that she had. She gave what actually mattered. But, but the contrast, though, is, is with the other people here. 
the rich. It's as if they're just like donating their spare change. They're not sacrificing. Maybe they believe that like they're just fulfilling an obligation, you know, tear that check out, check that box. I'm, I'm giving because I'm told that I have to give, doing it for show. Their faith had become empty. It was something that was routine, not genuine. For them, it was lifeless, not life-giving. I wonder if they were doing it like out of formality and not sincerity, not because they had a genuine desire to do so. So you think like, why did Jesus tell what the story that he did about the, the scribes at the end? And then why did he point this out about the widow? Like why, why all right here at the end of what just happened? I think the religion of the rich people here, Jesus wanted his people to see that it was just as empty as the religion of the scribes, the chief priests, and the Sadducees. Just as they were doing things for show and personal gain, he says, "Mm -mm, that's not what it's all about. It is all about giving all that you are to God. Point number four on the list, Jesus was showing them that he had authority over phony religion. He's calling them to a deeper, more authentic faith that goes miles and miles and miles beyond appearance and outward actions. Jesus is looking for a heartfelt devotion like that poor widow, not superficial religious practices. I think Jesus wanted his listeners and us to see that true worship and obedience comes from total surrender to God. Not, I'm going to give you this area, I'm going to give you this area, this one's off limits, this one's off limits. No, that's not what he is asking for. That's not what he is requiring. Total surrender to God. So as we close out the the passage here, you know, you stop and you you think, okay, Jesus' authority is being questioned. And then he gave four realms of life where he has authority. It doesn't matter what realm we pick, though. Jesus has authority over it all, right? I mean, you you summarize the list that we've looked at. Politics, taxes, the resurrection, self-centeredness, phony religion, offering money. And and you may think like, well, none of those are things that I really have to worry about that or that I struggle with. But just because something is not mentioned here does not mean that it is exempt from the rule of God. You see, it doesn't matter. You might have been thinking like, okay, I hope that It doesn't talk about sex or health or entertainment or career or leisure or parenting or friendship or sports or retirement planning or education or social media or whatever. All are under the rule of God. All that God wants from you and me is everything. And Jesus' authority demands that we give Him our all. You know, you might hear that and you might say, rightfully so, okay, Chance, I've, I've heard what you've said, but why would I do that? Like, yes, I see that Jesus wants me to give him my all, that he has all authority, but why would I hand that over? You would do that because of what has been done to save you. It makes logical sense to give him your all when you find out what he has done on your behalf. You see, each one of us, we are sinful to our core. We are evil. We are corrupt. We are so corrupt that we cannot fix ourselves. There is is no amount of self-help, no amount of accountability from other people, no amount of medicine, no amount of anything 
that can fix the core problem that we have of sin. We are doomed, destined for hell, every one of us. Any person who has ever lived and any person who will ever live is destined for hell. But God, in His great love, devised a remedy for that. He sent His Son to show us how to live, and not only that, to be punished in our place, on the cross, as a substitute. And for those who hear that and believe that, when God looks at them, He doesn't see their sinfulness anymore. He sees Jesus' perfection. Remember, He stood in our place. So a miracle happens when God looks at us. He doesn't see all of the horrible things that we've done. He sees the perfect life of Christ, which means then that we are no longer at odds with God because we've been made whole through Jesus. Why would you give God everything that you are? Why would you recognize Jesus' authority and hand your life over to Him? Because of what He did to save you. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your word. Even in a, a, a text like this, we may think that there are areas of our lives that are exempt from your rule, but it's simply not true. Lord, help us to see that our lives are not our own. God, help us to see the debt that you paid on our behalf and may our recognition of that debt create submissive hearts. Lord, help us to die to self. In Jesus' name, amen.